All right, I have some dear friends tonight to introduce. Of course, you met Joe uh, for the last several years, but I want to introduce you to Ray Self tonight. Um, Ray, I believe you were with us one other time. The second time up here in Livingstone. Um, but again, coming up from Florida, he loves us. That just says he loves us so much. He is a, an amazing counselor. He is a, leads a Bible college uh, that, I, that you'll hear more about. He's got some books and information out there. I really encourage you to check it out. Um, but he is, uh, where's Jeff Tim? Jeff, I told you, you listened to Ray's podcast, and you gave me rave reviews about his podcast. So I want to encourage you to check out Ray's podcast. Just a, a, a humble man a godly man, a gifted man, and uh, I want him to come tonight and kick us off by sharing the word, and then I'll come back up, give you some instructions, and uh, and then we'll move into a time of, of ministry. So will you, will you all hop to your feet and give a warm Livingstones welcome to Dr. Ray Self. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm from uh, originally from Memphis, Tennessee, so I would have to say thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm old enough actually to have been raised with Elvis, so I can actually tell you a few stories. But um, I didn't really know him, but I knew his girlfriend, several of those. <laughs> anyway, uh, originally from Memphis, Tennessee, about 50 years. In the last 14 years, been down in Florida with all the northerners in Florida. So, you know, <laughs> kind of strange. Glad to be here. It really was 84 degrees. Had a wonderful flight up here. Southwest Airlines has no more employees, apparently. And so uh, we get to the gate at Midway, and there's nobody to man the gate. So we sit for over an hour waiting for somebody to man the gate and found out that there were about a dozen other planes waiting for gates because there were no employees. And we finally get to the gate after we've been an hour late on the flight, an hour to the gate, and uh, get to baggage claim. There's nobody to get the bags to the baggage claim. So we waited three hours for our bags. Other than that, we did good. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So if anybody needs a job, Southwest Airlines <laughs> is hiring. I promise you they are hiring. And they need you. Amen. Listen, uh, I really appreciate you, and uh, thank you for listening to my podcast. It's actually a very original podcast. It's called Self Talk with Dr. Ray Self. How original is that? Amen? I'm very self-assured about that and self-confident about it, but I don't know too many self-puns because, you know, I'd be, I won't do that. No more self-puns. I'll be, hey. Listen, I love stories about healing and prophetic, and I just, I felt that I just wanted to share a testimony because it's a miracle from God that I'm standing here. And also the prophetic kind of changed my life. But when I was uh, 18 years old, I was a basketball player. I was a little slimmer, okay, amen. And uh, I played basketball, and quite a bit of basketball, and I, I broke my foot getting a rebound. I was so far above the rim, you know, that when I came down, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, my chin was above the rim, and then when I came down, what are you laughing at? You know, I, you know. <laughs> It was a six-foot rim, but it was okay. I was, I was up there. You know, I came down. I broke my, I broke my left foot, and uh, played on for about another next year. Um, I broke my right foot. A year later, I broke my left foot again, and about two years later, I pulled all the ligaments out of my right ankle. And uh, you know, I didn't know what was going on. I felt it was just really, really uh, bad luck. Okay, so finally, I get to a specialist. 
And he did some x-rays and some tests. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you know what your problem is? I said, no, I keep breaking my feet. He says, no, you have Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. And I'm thinking, what is Charcot-Marie-Tooth? Anybody know what that is? Very few people. It's actually um, it's muscular dystrophy. And uh, it's muscular dystrophy that hits the lower legs and the feet and the hands. And uh, I said, well, what's going to happen? And he said, well, you will end up crippled uh, in a wheelchair, and you will never walk again. That's what he told me. That's uh, when I was probably in my late 20s. That's when I finally got the diagnosis. I just something in me said, no, 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 no. I am not going to receive it. I just could not receive that. So I go to the church, and they pray, and they laid oil on me, you know, put oil on my feet, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and prayed, and I just kept on going. I just kept on, I just kept on, I kept on playing basketball. I played golf. I did all kinds of stuff. And you know what? I'm still standing here. And they said I would never walk again. So now my left foot, I'm actually wearing some orthopedic shoes. My left foot is kind of deformed. It's, it's bent. But that just reminds me of what God did. Amen. It's just a little remnant. So this has been about five or six years ago. I started having a lot of pain in my feet again. And uh, my left foot especially began to hurt me. And I got into fear. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Oh, no, oh, no. And the swelling was coming in. And the pain was coming back into my feet. And I'm going, oh, God, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's coming back. The d disease is coming back. And I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my wife. I did not tell anybody. But I was, I was getting fearful, and I was losing my faith. And I'm sitting about second or third row at Freedom Fellowship Church down in Orlando, Florida. And this guy right here, and I may, I may cry. Okay. <laughs> so Joe Warner, he's a prophet. And he walks in. I hadn't told Joe. I hadn't told anybody anything. I was just in fear. And he walked over to me, and he looked at me, and he said, God says that disease will not come back on you. It will not come back in the middle of a sermon. And, and it did not come back. And that was in the middle of a sermon. It's out of the clear blue. It wasn't a prophetic line or anything. He just stopped and pointed to me. And, you know, that's, that's the gift of healing, and that's the gift of prophecy. And it's incredible. And it built my faith in Jesus Christ, and it edifies the church. It edifies me. That's why the Bible talks about prophecy. He who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, which is a good thing, but he who prophesies edifies the church. And we're going to prophesy your socks off tonight, folks. That's what we're going to do. Amen? <laughs> Anybody don't mind getting a little cold without socks? You know, that's the style right now. These guys wear suits with no socks. It's weird. You know, anybody wear suits with no socks? Do you do that? You don't do that. It's weird. Okay, anyway. <laughs> All right, and then anyway, just want to, anyway, Dr. Ray Self, I pastored uh, three different churches in Memphis for about eight years. Um, had some very unusual churches. I had a multicultural church in North Mississippi that I founded and pastored for, for a very long time. And um, it turned out, evolved to where it was no longer multicultural. It was not multicultural at all. It was a 100% African-American church in Mississippi. And um, the only multicultural people was my wife and I. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it was a cool church. It was a cool church. Oh, man, ooh, you talk about getting down. Dance. We were a dancing church, you know. I almost got a little rhythm in that church. It was <laughs> didn't, not too much. So I'm very blessed to be president of uh, ICM, International College of Ministries, and brochures on the back. It's a fully online, work on your own schedule, 
accredited, Holy Spirit-filled college, getting associates, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees, take credits from Global Roar, which is an incredible college, take credits from any legitimate school, even give you credits for your life and ministry experience. You just, there's brochures on the back, just go to the website, and you can do it. You can do it. And some of you need to do it. Amen? Especially a couple people. No. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, couple my books are on the back. I think we may be close to sold out. Uh, hear his voice, be his voice, and redeeming your past and finding your promised land. To me, I believe that everybody's got a promised land, and your promised land is being in the place God's called you to be, doing the thing God's called you to do. Until you get there, until you do that, you will not find any satisfaction. It's it's. You remember any kind of old rock and rollers here? Any old rock and rollers here? Just old rock and rollers. You remember Rolling Stones? I can't get no what satisfaction, but I try. And I try, and I try, but I can't get, no, uh-huh, okay. That's what happens when you're not in your promised land. You sing bad, <laughs> and you're never happy. I was a corporate businessman, owned six different companies, did some pretty cool stuff, owned a software firm, owned a, a national appliance factory outlet, did a lot of really cool stuff. I had my, my Cadillacs, my sports cars, my big boats, had all that kind of stuff, and I was miserable. I never could get happy because that was not my call. I want to tell you something, young people. When you ask a young person, what is it you want to do, it's a very dangerous question. Because when I was young and you asked me, hey, Ray, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to play guitar like Jimi Hendrix, man. Far out, yeah. Now, I'm not saying you want to play guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Ask your dad who that is. He'll tell you. Okay, amen. <laughs> and if he says purple haze is on my mind, just pay no attention to him. But what I'm saying is, it's not what you want to do. I want to be a businessman and make a lot of money. But until you do what you're called to do, you'll never be happy. So be careful that what you want to do is what God's called you to do. So when you, what you want to do is what God's called you to do. That's when you find your peace, and that's when you find your happiness. And I want to tell you something. There's three things you've got to do. Three things. You've got to discover your call. You've got to fight for your call. And then when you get into your call, you better settle down and commit to it. Anyway, I wrote about that in the book. They're back there on the back. If we sell out, um, Sherry did a, what do you call it, QR code back there where you can get more of them. Amen? Appreciate that so much. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which cannot return void. Thank you for this truth. I thank you for this incredible church, Father. I thank you for the anointing and the gifting here. I thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Father. You know, this church is not a church. It's a move. I said this church is a move of God. And I'm not saying to puff you up. This church really is a move of God. You know, that, that's, that's a different thing. This church is, is an organism. This church is flowing and growing. And, you know, my, my seminary professor used to teach me, he said, you know what? If God is in something, it is growing. God is a God of life. God is a God of growth. If something is, 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 is getting less, it's dying. Amen? But when God's in it, it's growing. I will tell you something. The difference between a man-made church and a God-made church is a God-made church is a lie. Man manufactures things. God creates life. And if God is in it, there is life. There's the, there's a, there's feels good. But if man has done it, it's just dead. We make man manufactures, God creates. You need to remember that. Amen. So I want to talk to you um, about history. I like history. I'm a history buff. I, I just love history. I also like football. But that's not related. But I'm kind of confused up here. What I mean, what what are you guys? Is this like Notre Dame or what is this? Is this... Northwestern, or is it all pro? It's bears. This is a confusing area. Where I come from, we're very clear on what we believe and who we cheer for. 
It's Go Gators. And where I'm from in Memphis is Go Tigers and Ole Miss. That's it. Of course, it's the Memphis Grizzlies and good barbecue. That's all we had. But up here, it's very confusing. That's all I wanted to tell you. You know what I'm saying? Okay, that's it. I'm over. Thank you very much. All right, back in the year, in the year 1812, there was a war that began in 1812, 30 years after the American Revolution, called the War of 1812. And what had been happening was, 30 years after the American Revolution, the revolution this is around 18 to 30 years later, the British were attacking our ships, not to destroy our ships, but to conscript or conscribe our sailors. In other words, they were kidnapping sailors off the American sailing vessels and forcing them into the British Navy. They would just stop a, an American merchant ship, take the guys off it, and say, you are now part of the Royal Navy. Well, we kind of got angry about that, and we started a war, all right? So there was a battle. Around 1814, the British sailed up Chesapeake Bay, went up the Potomac River, and attacked Washington. And they pretty much destroyed Washington. They burned the White House. They burned part of the Capitol. And they would have really wiped out Washington, but there was a supernatural, horrible storm that occurred, which nobody can explain. The worst thunderstorms and lightning and hail and wind that anybody ever experienced. And it actually, the storm drove the British out of Washington. But the British were not finished. They sailed on up to Baltimore because they felt like Baltimore was the key to destroying and conquering America. So the British were out to get us. We were at war. And so they get up to Baltimore, up to Chesapeake Bay. When they get close to Baltimore, there's a fort that is guarding Baltimore called Fort McHenry. So here comes the British fleet. They have about 19 ships. Each ship has close to 40 guns. They have a total of about somewhere between 500 and 700 cannons aimed at Fort McHenry. Before the battle start, there was this guy named Francis Scott Key who decided he wanted to negotiate with the British. He decided to see if he could negotiate with the British to exchange prisoners because sometimes the British would do that. We had some British prisoners. They had some American prisoners. And so Francis Scott Key got in a little boat, sailed out to the British fleet, and met the admiral and told the admiral he was here to negotiate a prisoner exchange. Well, the British admiral, and I believe his name was Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Cochrane, he invited Francis Scott Key to come on board and have dinner with him. Francis Scott Key said, but hey, I'm here to negotiate. And the British admiral said, well, why don't you just sit down and have dinner with me? So they had dinner, and they began to negotiate a little bit, and all of a sudden the battle started. Well, Francis Scott Key said, I need to go back. I need to get out of here. And the British admiral told Mr. Key, said, no, you're not going anywhere because you know too much about us. So a battle began, and there was a fort, and this fleet was just not too far from the fort, and the British began to shell Fort McHenry. And they attacked Fort McHenry. Fort McHenry had, uh, what did Fort McHenry had? He had 1,000 men and 20 guns versus the British with 5,000 men, 19 ships, and somewhere between 500 and 700 cannon. And the British began to shell Fort McHenry because if they could take Fort McHenry, and this is kind of a drawing of the battle, they knew they could defeat America if they could take this fort. 
and they fired shell after shell after shell. And these were exploding shells. And they also fired, they actually had rockets. They'd fire rockets into the fort that would explode. As a matter of fact, one of the shells actually landed in the magazine, the, the armor, the magazine where they kept all of their ammunition, which is a really bad thing. But it did not explode, which was a miracle. Because if that shell had exploded inside the armory, the fort would have been blown to smithereens. That was a miracle of God right there. So the British shelled and shelled and shelled. And this shelling went on all night long. They say it was somewhere between 1,200 and 1,800 shells were fired at this fort. It was an amazing. So dawn rose, and the British had been firing and shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting. And as the sun began to rise, the fort had this little small flag all night long. The fort was flying. Just can you show the next slide? This is the flag that the fort was flying, or something similar to that. It's called a storm flag. And this flag was kind of small. And it really was not very visible. But when weather was bad or conditions were rough, they would fly what's called a storm flag. So this flag had been flying all night long, but it really wasn't seen very much. Okay? So at sunrise, at sunrise, the the uh, United States Major General Samuel Smith, he said, raise the flag. Raise the standard. Raise the standard. So they raised another flag. Now remember, the shells have been fired all night long. All night long. Over 1,800 shells have been fired at this fort. And the British thought they had won. But you see, all they, could, they couldn't really see anything because of all the smoke and the darkness and everything. And so the American said, the captain said, the admiral said, raise the flag, raise the standard. And I want to show you this next one. This is what they rose. This is what they rose. And I want to show you how big this flag was. Amen. This flag was 40 feet wide. That's about from here. And I'll do 40 feet. That's about 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 9, 10, 11, 12. Here, that width is, I just walked, that was the width of that flag. And it was 30 feet tall. It was 30 feet tall. All of a sudden, it became visible. It became visible. And it became evident that America was no longer invisible. Our flag was not invisible anymore. It was visible anymore. And when the British saw the American flag flying after firing all those shells, they retreated. They left, and America was saved. As long as the flag was invisible, the attack kept on and on and on and on. But when the flag became visible, they realized America could not be defeated. And the enemy left. So let's talk about Jesus. How does that relate to Jesus? Before we get into Jesus, when that big flag went up, when that big flag went up that was 40 feet by 30 foot, Francis Scott Key is on the British ship, and he'd been watching this all night long, and now it was sunrise, and the sun was coming up, and he's sitting on this boat, and he'd watched this huge battle, 1,800 shells fired. And all of a sudden, he writes down these words. Francis Scott Key said, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at twilight's last gleaming 
whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight over the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. And that's when he wrote that. That's when he wrote it. Because what I want you to get here was America, that flag was invisible all night long. All night long, that flag was invisible. But when the flag became visible, we get the, maybe the greatest song ever written, and we also get a victory and a British leave. So about 2,000 years before that, in Matthew 13, 53, we're going to tie this all together. So what's this have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with us and Jesus. Matthew 13, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown, verse 54, and began teaching them in their synagogue. And they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? In other words, who is this guy? Wait a minute. Jesus has been going around doing miracles, raising the dead, casting out demons, doing all kinds of stuff. Here he was, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Messiah. And he goes to his hometown, and they go, who is this guy? We know that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. That's old Joseph's son. Isn't that the carpenter boy? That's the little carpenter boy. Because you see, he was not visible to them. He was not visible to them. They could not see who he was. All they could see was that familiar spirit, who they think he was, the role that he should have been playing. Because I want to tell you something. It's not unusual sometimes with your old family and friends. So you get filled with the spirit. You get the anointing of God. But they don't know who you are. They want you to play the role that you used to be. They want you to go back to who you used to be. Your family, when you move on with God, there's people back here that do not understand what's going on with you. They don't know who you are now. You see, Jesus was no longer that little carpenter boy. He was the Son of God, the Messiah. Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Isn't this just a local nobody? Verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did he get all these things? Verse 57, they took offense at him. And then Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and his own household. You know what they were telling Jesus? How dare you not play the role you were assigned? How dare you not play the role you were assigned? How dare you? You know what? If you're like my family, I bet you you have some family. I'm not criticizing families, but you maybe have some people in your past that assigned a role to you that they still expect you to be playing. But now you've accepted Christ, and now you've got baptized with the Holy Spirit, and no longer can you play that role. You see, you can no longer afford to be invisible. Because, see, when you're invisible, things bad things happen. We have to become visible again. We have to become who God has created us to be. It's critical. It's important. 
How dare you not play the role that you were assigned as a child? Do you not know who you are? You're just a plumber. Oh, you're just that guy that drives a taxi. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're just that woman that works in the accounting office. Yeah, we know you. We know you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're just that, that nurse that works over at the hospital. Yeah, we know who you are. Amen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're just that you're just that guy, that insurance salesman. Oh, we know. Who, oh, yeah, you're that car salesman. Yeah, we know. We know who. That's who you are. That's who you are. Yeah, you need, you need to stay where you are, man. But you see, something has changed because you got saved, amen. You became a new creation. You became another person. You became filled with the Holy Something has changed. I say something has changed. Something has changed. Verse 58, and he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Imagine Jesus. Here he comes back to his own hometown. He's doing miracle after miracle after miracles, and they could not see. Oh, say, can you see? They couldn't see Jesus. They could not see who he was. And because of their unbelief and because of their blindness, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers, and we see it all over. We've got a lot of blinded folks in America, especially some of our leadership. Amen. Pray for eyes to be opened. They could not see who he was. And I, I want to tell you something. Satan has a scheme. A scheme is a plot. In Corinthians, it says we should not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. There is a scheme to keep you hidden. There is a scheme of the devil to hide you, to hide who you truly are. And this scheme will manifest sometimes to your friends. Your friends can't see who you are sometimes, your unsaved friends, and they want you to go back to who you used to be. They want to keep you hidden. We see God has exposed you now because you now are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You now are a head, not the tail. You now are a temple of the Holy Ghost. You now are a child of God. You now are a member of the royal priesthood. This is who you are now. You are a different person. And Satan wants to cover you up. He wants to hide you because he knows if you are invisible, he can get his licks in. But the moment you become visible, I say the moment you become visible, you can defeat the devil. The moment you become visible, I'm talking about visible, the true you, the, the person God created, the Holy Spirit filled, man of authority, woman of power. When you become visible, the enemy flees. That's why he wants to hide you. He wants to hide your identity. He wants to hide his truth from you. He wants to hide who you really are. He doesn't want anybody to see the truth about you. And he will use people close to you, unfortunately. I remember not too long ago, I went up to, to Memphis for Thanksgiving dinner. I, one of my family members is pretty wealthy. They got this, I'll never forget, they have this table. It's a dining room table that seats 16 people. It's a pretty good dining room table, you know. And... Uh, they're, they're pretty, you know, they have means and stuff. I'm sitting there with some family and friends and uncles and nieces and nephews and friends of nephews. I don't, there's like 30 people there. And not one of them really understood who I was. They didn't know. I mean, I didn't shout at them, hey, I'm Ray Self, prophet of God. I was, just that, I was just that Ray that grew up on Avon Road in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm, I'm just Ray, you know, I'm just Ray that used to smoke weed and party a lot and, you know do concerts and stuff like that. You know, I, you know, they knew they knew me. They knew who I was. No, they did not know who I was. They had no idea who I was. They had no idea who I was. And you know what? If maybe if I had been visible to them, some of them would have accepted Christ. Maybe if I had been more visible to them, some of them would have got free. Amen. Maybe if I had been visible. Do not let the enemy hide you. 
You must not let the enemy hide you. But let me tell you something. This scheme to hide you even involves churches. I will tell you what. There are people in Crown Point in Maryville who cannot see this church. They cannot. This church is invisible. You, this church, as much growth as it has, I promise you there are a lot of people that have no idea that this church even exists or what this church is about. You say, well, how could that be? It happens. It happens all the time. You must remain visible. You must. Now, when I say visible, I'm not saying, you know, just visible anybody. You need to be visible as who God created you to be. Some of you may have a problem. You really don't know who God created you to be. Maybe you don't know your identity. You have a call and anointing of God. Maybe you don't know what it is. We're going to be praying tonight all about that. It's critical that you are seen. It is critical that you are seen, not as who they expect you to be, not in the role that they want you to play, not in that old identity. You need to be seen. Your anointing, your gifting, your talents, your true identity in Christ must be visible. The kingdom of God depends on it. Your community, your country, your church depends on this. We must become visible. When the British couldn't see the flag, they kept shooting at the fort. They really weren't having much effect. But they kept attacking and attacking and attacking. But the moment we became visible to them, they left. And I want to tell you something. If you want to defeat the enemy, become visible. Become visible. Let your anointing be visible. Let your gifting be visible. Let the call and purpose of God on your life be visible. It's what it's all about. You see, Jesus' friends and family, they missed out on a great blessing. There are people around you that will miss out on a great blessing if you don't become visible. You need to become visible just not only for you but for the people around you. You say, well, well you know, I'm a businessman. Yeah, you're a businessman, but more than a businessman, you're an anointed vessel God, chosen. Satan rejoiced when Jesus was rejected in his hometown. And I want to tell you something. Don't you know that it hurt Jesus? Can you imagine the pain he felt, rejected by the people he grew up with? And I've experienced that pain. And maybe you've experienced that pain once you got saved and filled with the Spirit. Maybe you've been rejected by people because you really want to share with them what you have, don't we? We want to be visible. We want the glory of God in our life to be visible. We want the kingdom of God to be visible through us because we know what it would do for people. We know how it would benefit people. We know the blessing we could bestow on people if they could just see and believe. Sometimes you just need the gift of discernment to tell you what you're dealing with. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. That's what Jesus was experiencing. That's exactly what he was experiencing. And again, and for 2 Corinthians 2.11, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. And this is what I wanted to preach to you tonight. There is a scheme, a plot, a plan to hide you. There is a plan of the devil to hide who you really are. There's a plan of the devil to hide you, to hide your true identity. And we cannot allow this to happen anymore. We cannot allow who we are to be hidden anymore. It is critical. It is critical. You and you know what? And God's no respect to our persons. We're all equal. There's no one of us here that is greater than the other. We're all equal. But we are children of God filled with the Spirit, and that must be seen. It needs to be seen. It has to be seen. We must be constantly aware of what the enemy's up to because we know what he's up to, 
you can defeat him. And I will tell you, one of the biggest plans is to keep you hidden. And don't allow him to do it. Say, no more. I will not be hidden anymore. Anybody agree with that? Say, I will not be hidden anymore. Raise your hand. I will not be hidden anymore. Just tell, tell God, I will not be hidden anymore. Lord, forgive me for being hidden. I will not be hidden anymore, Lord. I will let your light be seen. Our focus is on God, but at the same time, we're in guard against the devil. The world needs to see the glory of God through you. And we have to take a stand. And that's all I wanted to tell you tonight. I mean, that's really it. It's a simple message, but I hope you get it. Because when I look out in you, I see incredible people. I mean, every one of you, if you are saved, you are a child of the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords is your daddy. And not only is he your daddy, but he made you a joint heir. Do you get that? A co-heir with Jesus Christ. And that needs to be seen. That needs to be known. Not for your purpose, but for the purpose of the kingdom of God. This is not for your ego. This is for the benefit and the glory of Jesus Christ. This is for his church. It's for your daughters. It's for your sons. It's for your wife. It's for your boss. It's for your school. We have to be seen. And that's what I wanted to tell you tonight. So I want to pray with you. And then we're going to do a lot of ministry at the altar here. Amen. Some of you need more than others, especially some people over here. You got a different Alabama hat on tonight? <laughs> Golly. Roll Tide. You have to talk redneck for Alabama people to understand you. <laughs> Roll Tide. <laughs> See, I pastored in Mississippi. I can talk Alabamian. Sometimes you have to talk slow. Roll Tide. Lord, forgive me. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Jesus. <laughs> At least they cheer for something down there. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, I praise you, Father, that Jesus was our model. He was our example, and he experienced things that we would experience to show us a way, Father. So, Lord, we praise you, Father. We, Lord, we thank you for your anointing. I thank you, Father, for your gifting on each person here. I thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit resides upon us and in us, Father, in the name of Jesus. I thank you for your salvation. I thank you, Father, that we are new creations in you, Father. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke and I renounce the scheme of invisibility. I rebuke and I renounce in the name of Jesus Christ the scheme of invisibility. We will not be invisible anymore. This church will not be invisible. This congregation will not be invisible. Every man, woman, and child here filled with the Spirit will no longer be invisible. We will be seen to glorify Jesus. We'll be seen to show the life of Christ to the dying world. We thank you, Father. We repent of our unbelief, Father, and we accept your truth now, Father. We will be seen, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.